Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is David Davenport, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. His talk is entitled, Rugged Individualism, Dead or Alive. It was recorded on January 23, 2017. Uh, you really went out of your way to make us feel welcome here, We've, uh, those of us from Northern California. Uh, uh, well, even before we get to the weather, uh, you, you, you've made Los Angeles now into a sanctuary city, so I can feel comfortable traveling from one sanctuary city, San Francisco, to another, Los Angeles, uh, barely noticing the difference uh, now. And then, of course, you've uh, created a flood zone, so we would feel welcome here uh, as well. It occurred to me that if you made it to the conference this morning, you don't need to hear a speech about rugged individualism. You are uh, rugged individuals. I remember traffic in Los Angeles was, uh, was all the more difficult uh, during, during rain. So thank you for making the uh, extra effort uh, to be here. I do want to uh, share with you a little bit today about this uh, book that you either have or will receive, Rugged Individualism, uh, Dead or Alive. Uh, I was amused when Colin mentioned uh, Neil Ferguson, who's just apparently finishing a book this month and will finish another one in the summer. Uh, these are not that easy to do. When, when Gordon and I wrote our first book of about the same length, I presented it with great pride to my wife who looked at it and she said, all that work for this? You know, it's sort of a slim, sort of a slim volume. Uh, and, and the other thing that occurred to me is, is uh, when I was at Pepperdine, we had the religion scholar Martin, Martin Marty come to speak. And like Neil Ferguson, he just seemed to crank out books constantly. And he told a story of one of his colleagues from across the country phoning his office one day and asking to speak with him. And his secretary said, I'm sorry, Dr. Marty is writing a book. I, he can't come to the phone. And the colleague said, that's all right, I'll hold. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but we find it actually quite challenging to write a book. And especially when there are two of us involved, we have to debate every word practically to get this sort of thing done. What Gordon and I like to do, Gordon is a and I were colleagues together at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy for a number of years. We've each left Pepperdine now, but we continue to work together and, and enjoy each other's company and work. Um, Gordon and I like to go back to come back, as we put it. We like to go back into history a bit in order to come back to policy today with a little better understanding, we hope, and insight into why policy works the way it does today in light of what's happened in history. So there is a fair bit of history in this book, but it's, it's not there just for your enlightenment. It's there to come back to policy today and to see how this may inform us. And in particular, Gordon and I spend a lot of time back in the New Deal. We believe that Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s was really a hinge on which public policy in America turned and we think in many ways, domestic and economic policy today is still the New Deal. We think the New Deal has been the paradigm basically for American domestic and economic policy for 80 years and still going. And so we continue to work on the New Deal to understand really how policy turned at that moment and why we're still building on the New Deal today and whether there are some alternatives that we may want to consider uh, in, instead of just continuing to build on the New Deal. In, in the uh, introduction to our book is this little matrix that we invite you to consider today and, and uh, on into the future. 
Uh, and it's quite simple, really. On the left uh, axis is good and bad, and at the bottom are dead or alive. So our book is American Individualism, Dead or Alive. Uh, uh, and American individualism, rugged individualism, has really had its ups and downs throughout our history. It has had some enemies. Uh, Henry Kissinger uh, famously said, even a paranoid has some real enemies. Well, rugged individualism uh, has had some real enemies uh, over time. Uh, the progressives, uh, the New Deal, uh, uh, have been enemies, particularly firing at rugged individualism from the aspect, from the angle of economics. And then there are enemies today from the angle of sociology, sort of attacking rugged individualism. But somehow it does seem to survive. And in fact, Gordon and I ask in the last chapter of our book, may, might there be a new era of rugged individualism ahead of us? We'll talk about that uh, a little bit later in, in uh, the presentation. But the idea on the matrix is to think about where some different figures from history fit on this matrix, and indeed where you might fit on this matrix. Do you believe rugged individualism in this country is dead or alive? And then once you place yourself there, do you think that's a good or a bad thing? So President Obama talked about rugged individualism in speeches at least twice that we know of. And in each case, he acknowledged that it's alive, that rugged individualism is a force that we still deal with in America. But of course, he thinks that's a very bad thing. And so yeah, he would be placed in the bottom right. It's alive, but we're not happy about that. Uh, Gordon and I think it is barely alive. So we're in the alive quadrant, but we're edging over toward the dead. Uh, and we think it's a good thing that it's alive, and we think it could use more energy. And as, as you'll see in my talk, we'll talk about others uh, throughout our history. Uh, and you know, Franklin Roosevelt wanted to kill it if he could, as, as I'll describe in, in a few moments. Uh, and so this, I think, is a very interesting way to think about it. Rugged individualism, is it dead or alive? Uh, is it solidly alive or barely alive? And, and is that a good or a bad thing? You may want to think about that uh, as we go. So individualism at the founding. Um, it very much, uh, it is very much the case that indi American individualism was planted into our DNA as a country uh, at the founding. Uh, the British uh, writer G.K. Chesterton said, America is the only nation founded on a creed. And uh, so in the book, we quote a number of people who, who argue that individualism really is the American creed, if you will. Individual freedom, individual liberty. The, op the opportunity to run one's own life. And so it would not be, in contrast to Europe, it would not be the church, it would not be the monarchy, it would not be social classes uh, that would make the key decisions about people's lives, but the important decisions about people's lives in America would be made by the individuals themselves. That, we think, is sort of the founding idea. That is the DNA uh, 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 that was planted very deeply at the founding. Now, I have a little cartoon here that's probably going to be hard to see, and I, I'm disappointed. Uh-oh, I need to go to the red button, sorry. I actually put this in here for Warner Henry, who's not here today. Warner always has to have a little bit of sense of humor in it. This is my favorite cartoon from the founding. Uh, and in the cartoon, they're basically saying, religious freedom, these are the pilgrims coming across, 
on the ships. Religious freedom is my immediate goal, but my long-range goal is to go into real estate. Uh, so I threw that in for Warner. If you see Warner, tell him he missed the, the founding cartoon that was there for him. So the Declaration of Independence, uh, I think, very clearly established individual liberty at the founding. Um, we hold these rights to be self-evident. Uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. And the problem is the king has not been protecting our individual rights. In fact, the king himself has been a threat to our individual rights. And so really the whole declaration is, is a document about individual rights and asserting what we call our natural rights, that these are not rights that are granted again by governments or churches or social classes. These are rights granted even, as the founder said, by God himself. They are natural rights. They are inherent within us. And so the Declaration, I think, clearly establishes this idea of individualism, individual rights. And then the Constitution comes along, and it's really, if you read it from this point of view, the Constitution is really about protecting individual rights. We don't just mean the first 10 amendments, which are very focused on that, the so-called Bill of Rights. And that is a very powerful uh, statement of many of our individual rights. And as you may know, the real debate about whether we would even have a Bill of Rights in the Constitution was a fear that by enumerating some rights, we might be leaving out other rights. So there were founders who said, no, we don't want a Bill of Rights. We don't need a Bill of Rights. And, and if we start listing them, then the ones we don't list might not be sufficiently protected, so let's don't. But finally, they decided to put in the first eight amendments enumerating specific rights, and then the ninth amendment that said, and by the way, just because we didn't list one doesn't mean we don't have it. And then number 10, saying that if, if powers aren't given to the government, they remain with the people or with the states. So this was kind of a belt and suspenders approach in the first 10 amendments. And of course, mostly those rights are in the Constitution being protected from our own government. And so there was a recognition at the founding that one of the biggest threats to individualism, rugged individualism, individual rights and liberties, was government itself. But the first 10 amendments aren't the only things in the Constitution that are about our individual rights, if you will. But there's also all kinds of checks and balances and balances of power and other protections that are there to protect the individual and our rights also from the government and also, as the founders said, from factions, from majority factions taking our individual rights. So again, if you go back to the founding and you're kind of thinking about individualism, individual rights, rugged individualism, you begin to see these things, uh, I think, more clearly. Then it was in the Western frontier, I think, when rugged individualism really became popularized. Uh, a lot of people would say, well, where did rugged individualism come from? And I think a lot of people would just naturally say, well, it came from the frontier. I mean, this is John Wayne. This is, you know, these are the cowboys. Uh, these are the pioneers in their wagon trains. This is American rugged individualism. And certainly, this was an important chapter. In my view, it was not the beginning of it, we have to go back to the founding for the beginning. But this was really a heyday, if you will, for rugged individualism in America. Alexis de Tocqueville 
talked about this from a philosophical point of view. The, the French uh, journalist and philosopher when he came to America and he said, you know, one of the things that really makes America work is they have all this land, they have all this territory and people are out conquering new territories. And it, and it makes the country, he says, sort of egalitarian. There's a certain equality in America because again, you don't have to wait for your family to give you land. You don't have to get a grant of land from the church or from the queen or king, but you can just go out there and take your own land and, and uh, farm it and, and kind of own it as your own. And in fact, uh, the American historian Frederick Jackson Turner, who wrote several things about the American frontier, most famously the frontier thesis, probably should have invented rugged individualism himself. If you read his essay, The Frontier Thesis, he is describing rugged individualism, but he never used the term. It was saved for Herbert Hoover later in the 1920s to actually coin the term rugged individualism. But Frederick Jackson Turner in his frontier thesis really describes beautifully American rugged individualism. And again, like Tocqueville, he argued this was really the heart of American democracy. The frontier, he said, is entirely democratic. It's, it's people uh, asserting their own rights, living their own lives, uh, if they don't like living with this group of people here, they just get up and go somewhere else. They're taming the land. Uh, they're, they're making their own way. Uh, he said, this is, this is really the heart of America. And he said, it, it wasn't, he said, the American frontier, Jackson argued, was not just a place, but it was a philosophy. Because we had the land, because we had the freedom, uh, it became part of the American psyche. Again, it became part of the DNA for Americans to have that sort of equality, that sort of democracy, the sort of freedom uh, to exercise their rights. Now, I, would, I note at the bottom, the frontier did allow collaboration. Uh, sometimes when I make these points, someone will come up to me and say, well, but you know, they weren't really rugged individuals. They would get in wagon trains and they would build houses together and so forth. And I say, yes but they all did that by consent, voluntarily by consent. These were not government programs. Uh, these were not government wagon trains. These were not government committees building houses. But of course, rugged individuals consent to all kinds of collaborative efforts. And again, Tocqueville was really caught by that when he came to America. He said, you know, Americans, they're just always joining things. They have all these nonprofits. They have all these voluntary associations. Everybody goes to church. Everybody pitches in. People give money. So uh, yes, rugged individuals collaborate, but they do so freely with their own consent. Uh, and so I think there's a real difference between rugged individuals consenting to collaborate and then sort of government regulation, which we're going to come to uh, in just a few moments. But as the American frontier began to close, there was a debate about what should happen, what would happen and what should happen to rugged individualism. In 1890, the American Census Bureau actually stopped counting the progress of the frontiers to the West. Their, their, their view was that the American frontier, we basically reached it. We reached the Pacific Ocean. There's no more West to go to. Uh, and so the frontier is basically closed, and we, the Census Bureau, will no longer count or keep track uh, of, of the, uh, the American frontier and the move to the West. And so this led to quite a debate in which the progressives became very, very vocal. Uh, and they argued, all right, 
it's time now to live differently in America. It's time when we have to band together, we have to live in cities, we have to have more regulation, we have to have more government. Uh, and it, it, there, were, there were different schools of thought even among the progressives. Some of the progressives said, well, rugged individualism worked fine as long as we had all that open land and we had the frontier, but now it's gone so we have to learn to live differently. Others progressives said no, rugged individualism was always bad. It was, it was a, a selfish sort of mistake made at the founding. It's always been selfish. Rugged individuals ended up raping the land and destroying natural resources for their own benefit. So there was, there was a debate on whether rugged individualism had been good or bad historically, but the progressives were convinced that come the closing of the American frontier, it was now gone and it needed to be replaced by something else, and that something else was essentially more government. We needed more government regulation. Charles Beard, in 1931, wrote a famous uh, essay called The Myth of American Rugged Individualism. And I like to say that President Obama must have been channeling his inner Charles Beard when he gave his You Didn't Build That speech. Do you remember Obama's You Didn't Build That speech? You just think you built a business, but you didn't really build it because we, the government, built the roads and the telecommunication and the internet and all the things that allow you to have a business. Well, of course, you know, who paid the taxes to the government <laughs> in order to do all those things? The businesses paid the taxes. But uh, Beard made the same argument in his essay in 1931. He said, business people talk about rugged individualism, but in fact, they have been lobbying the government for bridges and for roads and for waterways and for all of the things that they need to do their business. Uh, and so this was part of the progressive argument against rugged individualism. Uh, John Dewey, very famous uh, philosopher of education, described it as ragged individualism. Uh, and he said this has been an unhappy chapter uh, in American history. So there was a, there was a rise of the, of the debate. This was sort of a, this was a very threatening time, if you will, for rugged individualism. Now coming up on the other side of this, and I think this is a perspective many don't have on Herbert Hoover, if you ask the typical a person who was Herbert Hoover, well, he was the president who you know, didn't get us out of the Depression. Um, but he, there was a lot to Herbert Hoover beyond just his uh, being president during the Depression. And her, it was left really to Herbert Hoover to coin the term rugged individualism, which he did in a 1928 campaign speech. He said, and, and really the context of this speech, so let, me, let me step back for a moment. As you probably know, Hoover spent his young adult years as a mining engineer all over the world, one of the most successful businessmen of his day. And then uh, he began doing government relief, food relief, especially during and after World War I. And in fact, it was out of that that the Hoover Institution was born. Herbert Hoover, doing food relief in Europe after World War I, found lots of interesting documents and paraphernalia that he thought should be saved for history. And he wrote back to Stanford University, his alma mater, and he said, I'll give you $50,000 $50, and I will begin collecting these th things in boxes and ship them back to you. And that was the beginning of what was called the Hoover War Library, which became the Hoover Institution. But in any event, he was shocked when he came back to America from Europe. Because in Europe, he had been turned off by the various isms, totalitarianisms, fascism, communism, socialism. 
And he said, I'm, I'm so glad to come back to America because the American system is one of individualism. It's not one of totalitarianism. Uh, it's one of individualism. But he was shocked that the government during World War I had collected up a lot of powers, that it wasn't turning back to the people. He was shocked, ultimately, by FDR and the New Deal in his collecting up of powers. And he says, isn't, isn't this crazy? He said, we're in danger of losing the American system voluntarily. Why would we voluntarily give up the American system of individualism and turn ourselves over to these forms of collectivism, totalitarianism? You know, Europe sort of had to do that in the war, but why would we want to do this voluntarily? So he, says, he said in, in 1928, in his, one of his campaign speeches, we were challenged with a peacetime choice between the American system of rugged individualism and a European philosophy of diametrically opposed doctrines doctrines of paternalism and state socialism. So this was Herbert Hoover's coining of the term rugged uh, individualism. And in fact, Hoover wrote a fabulous essay in 1922 called American Individualism. The Hoover Institution has recently uh, reprinted it. If you want to get a copy, I'm sure we can arrange that. Uh, it's, it's one of the best documents. People on both the left and the right say this is one of the best philosophical political documents that has been done. And he basically says American individualism, that's the American system. That's the American way. And he says it's not the laissez-faire, devil take the hindmost, selfish kind of individualism because in America there's equality of opportunity. Everybody has a chance at least or should have a chance uh, at economic rights as well as political rights. So this is a great essay that, that Hoover had written in 1922, and then in 1928 he coins the term rugged individualism. Well, Franklin Roosevelt would have none of it, uh, as you could imagine, and, and uh, the New Deal against Her Herbert Hoover becomes, I think, really a seminal debate uh, in, in American history that still defines our politics today. Uh, Herbert Hoover said in 1932, when he was running a second time for the presidency against FDR this time, that this was not a campaign, he said, between two men. This was a campaign between two philosophies of government. And it was basically Hoover's American system of individualism coupled with equality of opportunity. And it was Roosevelt's New Deal. We need more central government. We need more government experts sort of taking over uh, the system. And in particular, one of the things that happened that we can talk about in the question and answer if you'd like, because Donald Trump likes to talk about this quite a bit. In a, in a sense, what happened in the New Deal was the forgotten man came to replace the rugged individual as sort of the object of government policy making. Up to that point, government was relatively small before the New Deal uh, as a percentage of GDP. Uh, not only did the rugged individual have a seat at the table, the rugged individual really was the focus of policymaking, if you will. But as government began its dramatic growth that continues to this day in the New Deal, FDR substituted the forgotten man. And he said, this is really who needs to be at the part, at the center of policymaking. One of his cabinet officers, Harold Ickes, said, we have turned our backs for all time on rugged individualism. So this was not a mistake. Uh, this was a definite turn. It's sort of a Rahm Emanuel moment. Remember when Rahm Emanuel said a crisis is a terrible thing to waste? Well, the crisis of the Depression was not wasted by Roosevelt and the New Deal. He remade the government beyond 
in my view, what needed to be done to address the, the Great Depression. Uh, and as I said, we still live with this today. And part of their thinking was, we are moving away from rugged individualism, and now our focus is on the forgotten man. If you want, and as I mentioned, Donald Trump, his first tweet as president-elect was about forgotten men and women. His inaugural address, very heavy theme, forgotten men and women. I think Trump's forgotten men and women are different from Roosevelt. So we can, we can come back to that if you'd like to uh, in the Q&A. So this is a big turn. The forgotten man becomes sort of the center of policy making. And as I've already mentioned, the New Deal became, in effect, the paradigm for domestic policy in this country for 80 years and still counting. Now, one of the intriguing stories that we tell in the book that we don't have time really to go into today, but just as um, Presidents Harding and especially Coolidge and Hoover in the 1920s began pulling back powers that had gone to the government during World War I, they very, it re returned to normalcy was the Harding uh, slogan, Coolidge, Uber conservative, Hoover conservative, they began pulling those powers back from the federal government. The war's over, and so we don't need the federal government having all these powers. So you kind of thought maybe at the end of World War II that the same thing would happen. But it turns out that Eisenhower did not roll back uh, powers from the federal government to the states and individuals. He began building interstate highways and, and the government continued to grow. Uh, and uh, so the administrative state now has become the norm. Uh, the New Deal administrative state uh, is now the norm and not the exception. Two modern revolutions that we focus on in the book, uh, the Great Society Revolution, Lyndon Johnson obviously uh, tried to, as he put it once, out Roosevelt Roosevelt. Uh, Roosevelt was his mentor and he wanted to outdo Roosevelt if he could. And so the Great Society declared war on poverty, uh, declared uh, educational priorities, wanted to clean up the cities, improve the countryside. Uh, that's what the Great Society was all about. But I will say, on one of the biggest initiatives of the Great Society, Lyndon Johnson at least left room, and, and I think this is an important policy paradigm, Johnson at least left room at the table for both the forgotten man and the rugged individual. When Johnson did Medicare uh, in his administration, he allowed for Medicare for the forgotten man, if you will, but he also allowed for individual policies and company policies and individual health insurance and retirement accounts. And in fact, later, as you know, there would become, from the federal government, favorable tax treatment when people did those kinds of things. So I think despite the grandiosity of the great society, Johnson at least was wise enough or saw the politics clearly enough that he, he left room for both. He left room for the government to help the forgotten man, but not federalize everything away from the rugged individual. You could still have your own retirement. You could still have your own health insurance. You could even ultimately have some tax relief from the government in order to do that. That's not how it would be done later, but that's how it was done in the Great Society. And then, of course, the Reagan Revolution. I mean, what a great story this is, where really Reagan helped us recalculate, reset our thinking about the role of government in our lives. You know, his, his inaugural address, uh, government isn't the solution to the problems, government is the problem. 
and although Reagan found it difficult to reset as many things as he would like to in the balance between federal power and individual and state power, um, he didn't always have a friendly Congress helping him out in that regard. He did make major uh, tax, undertake major tax reform, and he did rhetorically sort of reset the relationship between government and the individual in a very valuable way. The other thing we do in our book um, is we, in addition to looking at government policies, we also liked looking at philosophical debates of the day. Uh, and so a, a very famous philosophical debate that you might even remember from the 1960s, 1970s was Milton Friedman, obviously on the side of individual freedom versus we picked Michael Harrington. We could have picked many, my, my friend Tom Hayden, who passed away recently here in LA. We could have picked many of the 60s and 70s radicals who had a sort of a collectivist idea. And so we had a, a philosophical debate between the Milton Friedmans and the, the Michael Harringtons and Tom Haydens and, and others uh, in, in, during that period of time. Um, and these philosophical debates continue today. And, and one reason we think it's important to include those in a public policy book is because as Tom Sowell, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, wrote in his book, Intellectuals and Society, he says the way major policies really change in this country is first the intellectuals begin to talk and write about it. And then the policy people sort of discover it and they begin to move on it. Uh, and I think a classic example would be climate change, uh, where uh, Al Gore and others began you know, studying and talking about the science of, of climate change. And then the policymakers began saying, oh my goodness, we have to do something about this and began uh, uh, drafting Paris uh, climate accords and other things. So this, this sort of rhythm of, of intellectuals talking about, writing about, expressing ideas in, in the philosophy realm that sort of then move into the policy realm, we think is a very normal progression in our country. And so where we are today in one of those philosophical debates is Thomas Piketty, who began writing about income inequality. Uh, a French economist, his, his book Capital in the 21st Century, is really the Bible, if you will, uh, about 10 times the size of this, um, uh, on income inequality. And so uh, as he begins writing on income inequality, then Obama steps right up to the plate. And he says, well, this is really the, uh, Obama called it the defining challenge of our time. And it's really a social problem. It's not really a government problem. It's a social problem with more and more people at the top having a greater percentage of money than people at the bottom. That's a society problem. But uh, Piketty argues that it's the kind of social problem that demands a government solution. Only the government can really fix that. And Piketty argues it's not going to be enough to just create more safety nets, more welfare. It's not going to be enough to just give people more education so they can get better jobs and make more money. But instead, what it's going to require is income redistribution. Uh, and in fact, Piketty, this hasn't been much talked about. He basically says in his book that we already give the government 30 40% of our money. Why don't we start giving the government 50% of our money and let government do more things? Um, and, and he says this isn't really so much because government is so great at it, but it just, that's the only fair way to do it. 
you know, is, is the only fair way we can solve this in, income inequality problem is to take more money from the wealthy and give, give it to the government, and then the government can control more of what goes on in our lives. It will be hard to find a bigger challenge if, you know, if this begins to move into policy to American individualism, to Herbert Hoover's system, uh, American system, American way uh, than that. And so we, we think this is one of the, the big philosophical challenges that has to be watched in, in policy. We describe it as a kind of soft Marxism, uh, soft in the sense that, that Piketty doesn't say we need a violent revolution, uh, but very much uh, Marxist in its orientation. Uh, another debate uh, is in the realm of sociology. And, and two books by sociologists, one, Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella, uh, back in the 80s, I believe, and then Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, both make the argument that by now, American individualism has just become selfishness. Uh, Tocqueville worried about this, by the way, back in the, in the 1800s. He said, I worry that American individualism, with all Americans' you know, free time and their freedom, they could become selfish. They could turn inward. They might not be engaged enough in civic life. Well, both of these sociologists argue, we're there now. Uh, American individualism has become selfishness, and we need greater collectivism, and we need greater communitarianism. And uh, it's, it's quite an interesting debate. Francis Fukuyama who's at Stanford now, uh, right across the street from us at the Hoover Institution. He's, he's at the Freeman Spogli Institute. He says, no, he says, Americans are anti-statist. They don't like the government telling them what to do, but they're not selfish. I mean, they, they still go to church. They still give away lots of money. They're still involved in Habitat for Humanity and all kinds of volunteer efforts. They're not selfish, they just don't really like the state doing all those things for them. And I think that's a pretty good way of framing uh, this particular debate. Obamacare is another great example of this debate. And we, we spend a few pages on Obamacare. I guess it may be irrelevant here shortly, we'll see. Um, but Obamacare could well have followed the model of having a safety net, if you will, for the forgotten man, and individual policies for the rugged individual. Um, the argument was made, no, we have to get everybody in the same sort of federalized system for it to work. It turns out that didn't work anyway. Uh, it wasn't really necessary to do that, and it, and it turns out that it hasn't worked. Uh, and so again, rather than leaving room for the rugged individual, we simply uh, federalize for everyone. So looking to the future, we try to point the way towards something hopeful. Uh, it was actually here in Los Angeles where I saw one of my favorite bumper stickers on the freeway. Big letters, there is no hope, small letters underneath, but I could be wrong. Uh, and Gordon and I have those debates, you know, well, are we hopeful or not? And uh, so in the, in the last chapter of the book, we, put, we, we split the difference. We put reasons to be pessimistic and reasons to be optimistic. And reasons to be pessimistic, it doesn't look like politics and the government are moving in generally hopeful ways for rugged individualism, the, the political climate. Young people today don't see individual liberty as a really high priority. It's just sort of an abstraction for them uh, that they don't really think about. Developmentally, we're coddling our kids today uh, rather than allowing them the room to become rugged individualism. You know, we, we have helicopter parents and 
We have uh, microaggressions on campus and safe spaces and all. I mean, all of this is a sort of avoiding rugged individualism uh, in our society. It's not helpful to the growth of rugged individualism. Young people are increasingly interested in socialism and in welfare, as you've probably seen in the polls, though it's not clear they know what that means, but they say they are. Those are, those are reasons to be pessimistic about the future of rugged individualism. Reasons we think to be optimistic are that young people especially are living in a more individualistic world. Through social media, um, they are living a kind of networked individualism, if you will. They are, more, they are tied to people, people they may never even have met, but they're operating kind of individually in that network. And if you look at the world of work for young people today, they're not so much going into big companies, uh, they're wanting to start their own business. They're, wanting, they're, they're in the gig economy. They're working some, some ways the economy forces this upon them. They work uh, part-time rather than full-time. So young people in their own lives are becoming more individualistic. Uh, it's not clear that that's going to lead to greater political individualism. Uh, and uh, uh, so we worry about that. We close with uh, the need to strengthen what remains. Um, we turn to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 2 that's written to a bunch of churches that are kind of decaying and dying. And the writer says uh, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 2, awaken and strengthen what remains. That's what Gordon and I hope our book does. Awaken uh, to the value of American rugged individualism and strengthen what remains. Realize its value historically and presently. Maybe we could identify more liberty moments when government and others are, are sort of running over our individual rights. We need to guard our constitutional protections, not, not give them away. We certainly need better civic education. That's become one of my big uh, projects and campaigns. But in the end, you know, one wonders whether government can really change. I mean, we, we look in our society with suspicion increasingly on big institutions, but government just plods on. Uh, almost unchanged. And, and we don't really know what uh, even a Trump administration, uh, I think, might do about that. So in the end, we, th we, we make a very modest call, in a sense, uh, to go back to our matrix. We think rugged individualism is sort of barely alive, but has survived over the years. And it at least deserves a seat at the table. That's all we're really asking for. Uh, and, and I hope I've at least persuaded you uh, that that's a, a reasonable alternative. And, and if you uh, decide to read the book, I, I hope you'll think more about kind of how you fit into that topic and, and what you might be able to do to both live out and to create an environment where others can live out uh, uh, rugged and, and American individualism. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.